Hello everyone, welcome back to this episode of Sabbath School from Home. Uh, we are nearing the sort of final weeks of the SDA quarterly on um, Revelation. This is, as it were, Lachlan and Luke, the end times for this quarter of the podcast. Uh, it may be that during these end times we are subject to very unique temptations. That is indeed our our topic for discussion this week. My name's Cameron. And I'm Luke, and I wonder really um, how unique temptations can be, given human nature remains. Yeah, and I'm Lachlan, and one of my temptations this particular recording session will be to cough, so I'll do my very best. I'm, I'm getting over the very, well, I hope the closing stages of what has turned out to be a very drawn-out and lingering sort of head cold and, uh-huh. um, you know, runny nose and, and a bit of a cough, Uh it may indeed have lingered because uh, lecturing on a sore throat, I have discovered, is not the best way to treat a sore throat. Ah, that's probably why doctors don't recommend it. Yeah, indeed. I was I was in conversation with a colleague, and we we realised students have a mechanism by which they can. Um, give notice of adverse circumstances and request various amendments and adjustments to due dates and, and other such things. And I I noticed the particular lack of any such adverse circumstance situation for, for us lecturers. So there, there we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we're, of course, getting um, further into Revelation and very much into the world of adverse circumstances. And the circumstances we're talking about this week are, are the end time deceptions, the sort of deceptions that Satan will use that will turn out to be highly effective and pivotal, um, you know, as the world nears its end. A brief summary. Can I start with one, Kim? Oh, sorry, you go ahead. Yeah. Brief summary, Locke. What are these temptations? There's, there's a sort of a broad categories outlined in this week's lesson. Yeah, it, it jumps in on two in particular, and... Um, I have to admit, they serve just slightly as a little bit of a time capsule. They they very accurately reflect the cultural context in which early Adventist pioneers coalesced and formed the denomination. So the first is the state of the dead, um, where it is asserted that Satan's deception is is the idea of um, you know a, a soul immediately transported after physical death in this world to to a spiritual heaven a spiritual existence in the next world you think of phrases like you know um i can i can think of auntie so and so looking down at me from from heaven mm. um and the reason that this is identified as being a deception is because it paves the way for spiritualism um and then the second of the deceptions focused in on in this week's discussion by the lesson is the historical change from the Jewish seventh day Saturday Sabbath to fairly early um, in, from our perspective, fairly early in the Christian history, the, the switch by Christians to a Sunday um, sacredness, a Sunday worship. And of course, that's fairly well-trodden ground um, in Adventist circles. Well, shall we shall we get straight to the point on those two then? Yes. Do we genuinely believe that there will be nobody who worships on Sunday in heaven? <laughs> this is 
This and second question, follow up immediately. Do we genuinely believe that there's nobody who's believed in the immortality of the soul will be? So uh, my answers to those are no, I don't genuinely believe that, that those represent absolute exclusion <laughs> categories. From, we from heaven, we but... hedge our bets on this because we say, oh, it doesn't really matter. For Sabbath keeping, for instance, it doesn't really matter. Um, it it's not until the end of times that well, this your, is what your I was stance about on say. this will really matter. But then, of course, we immediately turn around and say, but it is the end of times, or at least very close um, to end times. Uh, and so we sort of hedge bets on that one. Um, there is. And a sort of issues, stop me if we've talked about this on the podcast. I, I talked about it with some friends at Launceston Church. There are some large scale pictures we are we are painting about God's character when we push these agenda. When we say that these sort of highly pivotal and significant deceptions are these which you would have to say slightly more technical um errors of than say the principle of don't steal or don't murder. Um uh these these faults are a little bit more technical. One of the things we are sort of kind of inadvertently saying is that God can only really save experts. Now, we don't believe that and no one would seriously maintain it and we are not explicitly saying that at all, but implicitly we are because we run these seminars, these revelation seminars that take several weeks. Now, if it takes seven meetings over consecutive weeks to outline why this particular temptation is going to be the pivotal one at the end of time, that suggests some level of complexity. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm just not quite sure whether we are painting God in a favourable light. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if we're painting ourselves in a favourable light either, um, because the cognitive dissonance required to hold those two actually quite contradictory positions... Um, is not uh, rare in our church. I was recently in a Sabbath school lesson, um, and I like and uh, not not of my home church, and I like to have the opportunity to, to listen into Sabbath school lessons around the place. One because it's a polite thing to do when you're visiting a church to um, present um, material to the church members, uh, but two, it also helps me get a a sense of where the church members were at. In this particular Sabbath school, we had some ex-Catholic church members attending. Hmm. And we also had some church members who were obviously very um, interested in the idea of the Catholic church as the beast of Revelation or the or the whore of Babylon, one of them. I, I genuinely don't remember which is supposed to be the Catholic church, but I know it's one of them. And, but of course, um, the Catholics are lovely and there's many good Christian Catholics who really worship God and love Jesus. But the Catholic Church is definitely the beast of Revelation. Uh, but we definitely believe that there will be Catholics in heaven. Um, but the Catholic Church is driving people away from God and true faith. But uh, Catholics are lovely and, and we're very happy to have Catholic friends and, and um, people who were Catholics uh, in our church. And, you know, it just, it's... I mean, it was that in, in, in microcosm. And it's, well, at some point, like you said, Cam, we're hedging our bets, but I think it's a bit more than that. We're, we're being dishonest with ourselves. What do we actually believe? If Catholicism really is a scourge on the earth and a, and, and, and a, a deception of the devil, 
and is driving people away from God in the end times, we should be opposing Catholicism with all our might. Mm. Yeah, very and we're not. Yeah. <laughs> we're not. So as long as we're not, it is disingenuous to pretend that that's what we believe. Right. You're suggesting we, we could actually run the risk of being complicit in some way in this whole deception. Well, uh, if we do genuinely think it to be the darkest uh, deception of Satan in the end times, and yet we sort of benevolently well, coexist. This, this is a good point, because I'd always imagined, I'd always felt uncomfortable at sort of how um, this sort of vague atmosphere within Adventist church that we are the vigilantes that are going to go around and clean up the moral landscape at the end of times. Um, but w what you guys are saying is that we are not, militant enough because if I mean, well, if this is no, the expression no, no, this no, is no, the no, primary no, no, temptation no. <laughs> if we we're going to be logically consistent i don't think we should be more militant, yes but but yeah you've got to remember uh, the if at the beginning yeah. of the state if if we we're going to be logically consistent and this is the primary and most significant temptation of the universe's ultimate evil um then we are too too insufficiently opposed Here's, here's my next question. I've got two more questions to put out to, to us and to the listener. Um, the next one is, is it preferable for someone to work God, worship God on Sunday or not at all? <laughs> yeah, that was going to be... Follow-up question to that. Um, is it preferable for someone to worship God and believe in an immortal soul or not believe in an immortal soul and not worship God? See, those were going to be along the lines of my question. And this is why I deliberately pointed out the historical context for some of these ideas. Because remember, when Adventism first formed in the way that we're describing, it formed in a culture where everyone was Christian. That wasn't a point on which anyone was being differentiated. But it was which day were you holding as your sacred Sabbath? That was a point on which you could stand out as, a dif as different. And, you know, certainly in Australia where we're recording, and I think in many parts of the world um, where Christianity has been very historically entrenched, it's diminishing in, in that way. Uh, I was chatting with a pastor who, who's followed this a little bit in Australia and pointed out that the, the percentages, um, you know, every couple of years we do a census and the percentages of people who identify as Christian diminish somewhat census by census, but the absolute numbers don't so much. What's happening is the people who are Christians are still Christians predominantly. This was his observation. But there's a lot of new people in society that have, that have arrived in those or come in those uh, intervening years, uh, many of which are not Christian. And the, the problem is that the, that the Christian part of the population are basically getting old and dying. And they've not... <clears throat> It seems by census data, they're not being particularly effective at large scale. At having at babies. Doing a generational handover yeah. of, well, of that identity. <laughs> yes. the well, their faith isn't the only thing that generation's failing to hand over. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned the census. Just quickly, Cam, before you jump in, the, there was a milestone in Australia in the last census on, on religion. Australia is now officially an atheist country. Um, if if you're going by the past mark is 51% sort of thing. Um, so people in Australia who are atheists uh, is now greater. Uh, well, actually, I'm not 100% sure if they're 50% plus one or if they're simply the largest single group. 
Right. Uh, it could be a little bit different, but it is now the, it is, it's definitely one of those two and mm. it's bigger than the second. So atheists are now the largest single group, a faith group or, or, or lack thereof in mm. Australia. Um, and Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, um, everybody else, uh, does not, um, on their own outnumber the atheists. Can I, can I, just throw in that I've got so I've, I've been writing down notes and I, th I think this episode may have to spill into multiple episodes because this is really getting to the crux of the issue. Um, a few things. Luke, you said in a previous discussion, I can't remember if it was during recording or, or post-recording, that, uh, you know, football fans who disagree and, you know, violently oppose each other do so only on the basis of a shared interest. And if you barrack mm. for Holden or Ford at Bathurst, you still enjoy motorcar racing. And where there is no common factor, the um, sort of mutual antagonism and rivalry between the factions completely disappears. You know, um, mm. you know, fans of the Impressionist art movement don't get into violent altercations with Geelong Football Club supporters, by and large, because it's just... <laughs> It's just hard to imagine a world in which those two would be opposed to each other. Um, so <clears throat> this is this plays out in so many ways. Uh, we we do not acknowledge that the only reason our uh, our um, rhetoric is directed so strongly against the Catholic Church is because we are so similar. We have so much in interest in common. Um, uh, we don't we don't quite go for Buddhists in the same way or atheists in the same way. Um, mm. And so the very fact that we try so hard to distance ourselves from the Catholics is a sure and reliable indicator that in many, many ways we share a common focus. Um, otherwise, otherwise there would not be a need to explain how we are different to them. And here's, here's where that gets actually super important. So literally just over the weekend, I heard a... Um there was a reunion of a of a, a Newcastle youth church, a pretty significant and, and valuable thing that happened around the Newcastle area about 25 years ago for a number of years. Um, a sort of a Friday night church timed that way so that it would not be a, um, be quite so quickly accused of stealing all the youth from the existing Adventist churches in the region, although that accusation certainly was leveled at times. Um the pastor who led that shared a, a bit of a message and, and pointed out that in his opinion, the problem with um, so strictly um, sort of vilifying and, or, or, you know, exactly what we're playing with here, saying all other Christians who worship on Sunday are participating in a deception of Satan. It's, you can't say that in love. That's the whole trouble. You just can't do it. You have to be saying that they are bad people. Um, in some way or other, it just, it just, it sort of has to go there. But the problem is that if you, if you have, speaking to this generational handover problem, if you have young people who are bumping into friends or bumping, bumping into people at a secular university campus who share a lot of their Christian worldview, but happen to differ in some doctrinal points, it's not a compelling or convincing argument against the backdrop of everything that's happening culturally for this hypothetical pers young person at university 
It's just not a compelling argument at all to try and say that those Sunday-keeping Christians are complicit in a, in a nefarious and evil deception of Satan. Well, not only is... Even if it were true, it's a destructive thing to try and convince. Like, this is the point. I just think it's... Imagine... <laughs> <coughs> anyway, there's my cough. I've finished. I've finished okay. my thought. <laughs> well, look. Not only is it um, possibly uh, uh, dangerous, it's uh, well. It, there is this extra sense: a Christian at most universities in Australia is already fairly isolated. Denying hmm. them a sense of belonging and and community with other Christian students is going to be super isolating. For them, I mean, mm. if you're wanting to preserve their faith, um, there's there's this element <laughs> where there's this element where okay, so so the thing at the end of the time is going to be Sabbath worship, Sunday worship. Okay, we are saying then I've added to my list. I've already said that this suggests sort of implicitly because the argument about how you arrive at sad, sad, Sabbath first Sunday keeping um, that argument is fairly involved and requires a fairly nuanced reading of multiple texts and linking them together into a long-sustained argument. So there's this vague implication that God can only save experts. Um, here's the next statement about God's character it shows. It shows that God either does not want to or can't think of a way of saving Sunday keepers. Yeah. Now, both of those are really problem- problematic. If God does not want to, I mean, we maintain that God wants to save anyone. Um and then saying that God can't think of a way of saving Sunday keepers, the villains of the Gospels are the Pharisees. And mm. they are absolutely eviscerated by Christ precisely for trying to draw boundaries around who are the people God can save and who are the people God can't save. Yeah. And that, and yeah, they are absolutely, I mean, they are taken down in the most spectacular fashion by Christ for precisely yeah. those attitudes. And, and, you know, we've pointed out in previous episodes, we've, we've touched on the Sabbath quite a lot. It's a central part of the Seventh-day Adventist community, without a doubt, is this idea of Sabbath. But the idea of Sabbath is so rich and so wonderful. There's so many different aspects to it um, that I think it's still possible to be an incredibly passionate Sabbath keeper or Sabbath quester. Um while still asking some of the questions that we're asking. So I think that's true. And what what is another observation from the Gospels we've pointed out in previous episodes, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that Jesus consistently and repeatedly goes out of his way to provoke yeah. people on. Yeah. Um, there's got to be something really very confronting to us as Seventh-day Adventists who place so much significance and personal identity on this particular part of the commandments. Well, this is... Surely we have to be humble enough to realize if Jesus was confronting, going out of his way to provoke and confront this first century Jewish audience on this particular issue, I think we have to take some humility and realize that we might need a bit of provoking ourselves. Well, when when Christ looks at the people and says, um, you don't want me to heal this woman who's been ill all her life or the man with the withered hand. Ah, oh, you guys are so pathetic. If your donkey is sick um, or your donkey needs food, you take it and you lead it to food. And if it's stuck in the ditch, you pull it out and you do it on Sabbath. The implication there is, what sort of God do you think God is? 
Is, is God the sort of God who is so cruel that he'd just leave the donkey in the ditch? Um, mm. And this is the point. A lot of the, um, a lot of the um, chest thumping and, and um, uh, sort of rhetoric we indulge in about this um, does not line up with what we do in practice. We are actually much more accepting in practice than we are according to what we say. If someone turns up, when I was baptised, I was baptised alongside of a, of, a, of a young man with Down syndrome and his father, who was minister in the church, said that, look, he doesn't quite, he doesn't understand all of the fundamentals in the same way that you and I do, but he loves Jesus. And mm. everyone in the church says, well, obviously his experience can be real and authentic. Um, his, his relationship with God can be a saving one. Uh, we affirm that. We baptise him. He's part of our church. We don't seriously expect a full mastery of the 2300 days. Mm. Um, so we are actually a bit better at, at accepting sort of diversity of practice within the church than, than we say. A classic one on this is diet. Everyone has their, they're all, you know, believe in the health message, except, you know, everyone you speak to has their own little, it might be exotic chocolates or an occasional, <laughs> an occasional fish in Tasmania. Definitely fish is okay if you live in Tasmania. So, you know, everyone's got their own sort of edges to that one. And we're quite happy with accepting um, that. My question is that the rhetoric is obviously there to help strengthen our group identity, a bit like singing the chant, the team song at the end of the football match. Um, mm. Are we so anxious to affirm our own unique identity that we are compromising God's identity? Cam, the answer is yes, we are so anxious to affirm our group. And I've seen bountiful evidence of this, um, including wonderful independent ministries in the Adventist church that the administration attempted to shut down because said ministries were focusing too much on Christ and not enough on Ellen White. <laughs> yeah. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you know, for, for brevity, but that was the the accurate reason. They go, they're not talking enough about unique Adventist stuff. They're talking too much about stuff that's common with all Adventists, mm. right? So we don't like it. And, and this is beautiful this is actually ministry that was reaching people, people who weren't Christians. Yeah, this is deep. <clears throat> it's deeply insidious because I think what we're identifying is we're actually pretty comfortable with interacting with individuals cam like you're describing mm. but we are we have never become comfortable with interacting with organizations so adventist pastors are famously reluctant to participate in interfaith you know meetings of clergy in a particular geographical region adra is not a member of the world council of churches all right so this is the sort For of example. thing that i'm describing at our our lived experience of actually being not quite so straight down the line on this does not extend. We don't extend that same flexibility to organizational interactions. Um, so, you, you know, uh, here's the question. Well, we, we don't extend that flexibility to our rhetoric. Yeah. And, and how is it that we, uh, you know, you want to talk about latter day deceptions. This <laughs> one. We think we can say one thing and do another, and that'll be fine, and that'll successfully bring people to Christ. Yeah. <laughs> what if we turned up? What if we turned up to church, 
And we said, I had a dream last night. And um, I'm speculating. I haven't had this dream, and I'm not going to be dishonest, so I shan't be saying this in front of the church. But supposing someone were to stand up and say, I received a message from God last night, and there's been a breakthrough in the um, you know, heavenly legal team research subcommittee, and he's found a loophole that will let him save Sunday keepers. <laughs> um, isn't that good news? There's going to be more people in heaven. Uh, would it be received as good news? Because this is, if the answer yeah, is no, if the answer is no, then we have been deceived in some in some way. If our gut reaction is what, mm. and this is this is what I often think with the debate on, uh, it's not just this. There's debates on homosexuality. There's debates on large numbers of issues. In the back of my mind, when I yeah. hear people debating this, I I think in the back of my mind the question: What if what if we discovered that God could save these people? Would would we be disappointed? Uh, would we be outraged? Um, would we be, you know, the Pharisees saying this man eats with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, I mean, I've I've pondered a very very parallel thought in the past. Wouldn't it be a shame to get to heaven only to see someone there that you were so passionately convinced couldn't be there that you decided to leave yourself? Yeah. So you're, you're thinking that because you read it in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Well, a listener should read that because I was thinking the same thing because I've read the same. There's also the the um, story, isn't there? The and um, you know, um, Catholic who got to heaven and was wandering around heaven, being shown over the place, and went and looked at streets of gold, and went went and looked at um, you know all the fancy the tree of life and whatever else, and then it got to one section. There was a huge enclosure, massive high walls and wire across the top, and it was totally fenced off, no windows. And the Catholic said, oh, what's on the other side of that wall? Oh, it's a, it's just a copy of everything that's out here in heaven. A, a smaller copy, but, you know, we've sort of fit in a, some smaller streets of gold and some... Um, there's, a, there's a model of the Tree of Life in there. And, yeah. um, and the Catholic says to his heavenly guide, well, why on earth have you done that? Oh, no, we had to do that for the Adventists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well... I- we 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 should turn I mean, our it, attention. It's, it's a joke, but honestly, if that was the outcome of everything, it would be a lot better than what I fear the outcome for for our church is, because the the actual bad outcome is that um, there's not many Adventists in heaven, hmm. because the Adventist church deceived them about what was really important. Well, the, the, we we should. We should ponder a little bit. If we we are inclined, I am feeling, to suspect that the um, the great deception, as described in the lesson, might be just a less resonant idea, in, as we try and attempt to live in our world here today. It just seems like that might not be the thing that we should be dwelling so much of our time on, and that raises a fascinating question: What are if you were Satan, what are the things? What what what's a deception that you could unleash? Can I um, can I just say on this idea of this great deception? It's triggered an idea a lot. Um, mm. It reminds me of the difference between a conspiracy theory of um, you know massive government surveillance uh, compared to the actual foibles and inefficiencies and failings of an actual government. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> can you imagine? Can you imagine any organisation of people? Have you ever seen a, a group, an organisation of people anywhere achieve the level of unity of purpose and um, 
have the resources at their disposal and the you know an administrative and executive structure that actually functions sufficiently large enough to brainwash an entire global community through a vaccine um yeah. you know my local council can hardly collect the bins um so so there's this and i wonder if the same idea is true it's very easy to fantasize about some deep ultimate large temptation um at the end of time but what happens if the temptation is like a bit more mundane mm. i mean it makes me think could the slightly more mundane temptation actually be tremendously more powerfully harmful well yes of, of course the mundane's more harmful because it's harder to perceive the the actual danger i mean the, i think the real danger of conspiracy theories is not that people believe things that aren't true the real danger is that they that that while they're coming up with all of these fantastical very unrealistic ideas there are real conspiracies that are doing real damage, but then mm. the real ones are a lot more boring than the imaginary ones. And they get they successfully go under the radar and get ignored because everyone's focusing on the imaginary ones. I mean it's it's not <clears throat> I don't think it's unreasonable or delusional to imagine that, you know, there are very rich people who conspire to stay very rich at the expense of very poor people. Yeah. That is the reality <laughs> of human existence, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's it's how they do it where the conspiracy theories as it were diverge from the probable reality yeah. which they do it through really mundane means yeah um, yeah like, like boring tax, tax avoidance and, yeah. <laughs> and um, political lobbying yeah. you know as opposed to you know fantastical scientific breakthroughs that nobody else has access to Mm. Um, but, but I mean, that's that's getting a, a little sidetracked. I think your point is a really good one. The real deception then is in is in focusing on things which aren't important at the expense or aren't real at the expense of things which are and are. And I think you know, coming back to those questions, was it better for someone to be a, a Sunday keeper and believe in God than not believe in God at all? Right. Well, even then, we Luke. Because the answer is self-evidently yes. Here's, here's the next question. And this is, you know, think of the Gospel of James and think of the the, the Gospel, the Epistle of James. Um, oh, I guess it's, it's good news, so we can call it the Gospel. Um, think of Christ, some of Christ's parables. Is it better to be someone who says they believe in God but is bitter and vindictive and prideful and arrogant or someone who says that they don't believe in God and looks out for the needs of others? Yeah, I mean, this is the fundamental paradox in my observation of the world of the fruits of the Spirit, because um, I really, really like that New Testament picture of God and His Spirit interacting with the world. But as I look around, the empirical evidence on the ground suggests to me that there must be an awful lot of God's Spirit moving in places that don't verbally and consciously recognize it well this this is exactly what christ went to such lengths to establish you know there's we've we've talked and i know it's one of your favorite stories um uh both of you because we talked referred to it several times but the the centurion the roman centurion um mm. where christ turns around and says hey guess what i've not found faith like this in anywhere in israel and he's definitely an outsider and um you know the story of the bible is and we we forget because we say the god of abraham isaac and jacob they were outsiders. 
Um, you know, they weren't. Yeah. They 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 didn't reach a sort of moral standard before God started to use them or to interact with them or to speak with them. Um, and you know, someone like Jacob, his, you know, at the time when God appears to him in a vision, uh, it, there's nothing that he's done to warrant it. In fact, sort of actively the opposite. So there's this idea that God's spirit, God God seems to reserve the right to behave in surprising ways. Um, there's there was a talent show at Launceston Church. This happened before we got there, but I've heard that it's entered folklore. Um, there was a talent show where someone got up to do a bunch of impressions and they did a bunch of impressions and people in the audience guessed. And then this person started doing like a crazy John Cleese Ministry of Funny Walks, crazy contortions as they walked across yeah. the stage. And no one could guess who this was an impression of. And at the end, he said, no, no, it's an impression of God because he moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> so, um, but God, maybe God's spirit does move in mysterious ways. One, one thing that uh, I thought of is there's a verse in uh, John 11. This might be a candidate lock for a title verse for the episode. Uh, the Pharisees are worried about Christ and they say this. What are we going to do? This man performs many signs. Uh, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. In other words, they are acknowledging that his message is compelling. Mm. So there's, but they're not going to believe, but everyone will believe in him because he is compelling. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That is so telling because they had this incorrect view, you see, that the Messiah was going to rise up against the Romans. But what this verse reveals is they didn't even want that Messiah. They didn't want the Messiah they believed in because they, mm. they were sort of in charge of God's truth and they were, they were there all sitting pretty. And when someone who turned up who was compelling, you know, actually put their faith to the test, they said, you know what, um, we don't want him to fight the Romans because there is the risk that the Romans will come and take our place away from us and our nation away from us. Um, whereas other people like the disciples who also had the same... Um, error in doctrine as the Pharisees were willing to act on it. So you think of Peter pulling out his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's, they were confused and they were puzzled and they took them a long time to see the right path, but they did get to the right path. And the difference between them and the Pharisees is not whether they had a correct vision of what the Messiah would look like. It's whether they had the integrity and the courage and the, and the faith to, to persist with their belief. Mm. Well, it's it's like the um, this is something I heard in a sermon recently. The the bridesmaids, the wise and the foolish ones in the parable, hmm. um, who are waiting for the bridegroom to come to the wedding. Um, the wise ones also fall asleep. Yeah. yeah, they make the same mistake as the foolish ones in in that none of them stay awake. Um, the wise ones prepared extra oil. But they still fell asleep. They didn't. They didn't. They weren't perfect. They didn't get it fully right. Um, they they just worked a, a bit harder and paid a higher price. I've got mm. I've got a suggestion. Um, I once heard a, a, um, a, a morning worship. I was a staff member at an Adventist school, and the chaplain at the school started with a worship where he looked at Micah, and he looked at the Micah chapter 5. Where's the bit that talks about Bethlehem? Sorry. Uh, but you, O Bethlehem, 
You who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. And he, he talked about how astonishing it was and how precise prophecy is. Um, and it talks about the baby being born and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and they shall dwell secure. Um, and then the passage immediately goes on to talk about a military triumph. But the chaplain, ah. the chaplain didn't talk about the military sort of implications later in the chapter. He, he stopped at the little bit about Bethlehem, which was wonderfully precise, and, mm. and didn't mention the fact that a lot of these parables, not parables, a lot of these prophecies, which we hold to be very precise, have elements in them which are not precise. And the reason that the Pharisees and the disciples both believed in a militant Messiah is because there are plenty of Bible verses that suggest a militant Messiah. Mm. So I'm going to suggest this. The implication of the whole sweep of this quarter um, in the lesson is that prophecy is there to counter deception. Yeah. That's, and, and the reason why it is important to study Revelation is because of these very um, uh, nuanced deceptions that will be played on people at the end of time. And yeah, well, I mean, even this week, it uses the language effectively of, you know, it's a safeguard. It's a safeguard. We can study Revelation 12 and 14 and it can serve as a safeguard for us against Satan's deceptions. Against this, I would, I would observe that Christ often said to his disciples, I'm saying this to you now so that when it happens, you will understand. Christ acknowledged mm. that telling people what's going to happen ahead of time, it, it, it is not clear what it means until, sometimes oh. until it is a lived experience. The important it's it's thing, very encouraging. Sorry, you go, Ken. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just going to uh, finish by saying that the important thing is that things make sense. A lot of these prophecies make sense in retrospect and as they happen and as we yeah. find ourselves in them. But the important thing is to stay on that journey with God. I don't think prophecy is given to counter deception. I think prophecy is given to counter discouragement. Huh. I think we're going to have to yeah, well, get I, close I, to wrapping up on that. I was just <laughs> going to say, Cam, that it is very encouraging to me to to realise kind of for the first time, as you were saying, that, that Jesus essentially said many times to his disciples about prophecy, the same thing I've always felt about prophecy, which is that it's only understandable in hindsight. Hmm. Well, he, he says... What, what, what's the use of something that's only understandable in hindsight? Well, it's not to tell you what's happened because you can see what's happened. That's why you can understand <clears throat> prophecy. But what is it then? Well, it's to encourage you. I think you're absolutely right. Well, that's a relief. Um, we can <laughs> we can finish things there. Maybe our listeners won't. Just think before I'm we right. do, I, I have a final thought. Um, you give your final thought, and then I have a thought from a from a listener. Okay. Well, talking about deceptions in the end times. It, I find it hard to overlook the fact that in the parable of the sheep and the goats, what separates the sheep from the goats is not what day they worshipped on. It's not what sexual orientation they were. It's not how sinful or, or holy they were, uh, not, not in the classical theological sense anyway. Um, it's not what clothes they wore. It's not what opinions they had about economics or politics. Um, it's not what, what gender they were uh, or identified as. Um, and it's, it's not any of those things that separate the sheep from the goats. What separates the sheep from the goats is very clear. 
frustrates me immensely is that you talk to any church member about that and everybody will agree, but they don't seem to understand what it actually means. Certainly doesn't seem yeah, quite compatible with, with, you know, the narrative that's been spun about end time, the primary end time deceptions being state of the dead and, and Sunday keeping. Well, perhaps the deception is that those are the deceptions. Ah, that's good. <laughs> Method deception. Luck, you've got a comment from a, a listener. Yeah, well, uh, I've already mentioned to the audience that I've suffered um, from a bit of a head cold and feeling a bit sick in the last week. This is a listener in New South Wales, Carolyn, um, and she got she got COVID, oh and that meant that she couldn't attend uh, her normal Sabbath school. Um, she, I think, regularly listens to our podcast because she has actually sent in a comment before. Mm. Um, but it's an encouraging comment, and she says that she really resonated with our thoughts in a, in a recent episode where we... Um, we we commented that we we'd rather be caught accidentally loving people rather than accidentally excluding people because of a narrow interpretation of scripture. So that resonated with Carolyn, and I hope it resonated with with other listeners as well. Um, but she goes on to say um, that she appreciates our diplomacy when choosing to take umbrance with phrases from the lesson. Which, if you've been listening this quarter, you'll notice we, we've probably done slightly more. I feel like that compliment's habit. directed towards other members of the podcast than myself. <laughs> and rightly so but the the oh, the diplomacy i see what you mean Luke. yes the but diplomacy the, compliment <laughs> the point is this um carolyn says she's been wrestling with with the same sorts of issues um especially since watching the latest evangelism documentary released at big camp she says she could not think of any non-christian friends she wanted to share it with mm. and that that caused her to. She then goes on to talk about the remnant. She 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 is convinced the remnant will be a much more diverse group than uh, we can imagine, uh, and actually references the sheep and the goats like like you have in your closing comment, Luke. So um, all I'm wanting to point out is we have in conversation off air um, between ourselves shared how how it has been a little difficult at times. Um, feeling like we're swimming a little bit against the current of this quarter's lesson. And we're, we, I guess I am relieved, actually, when I sit in a church and hear others uh, are similarly put off by some of these ideas. And I'm relieved to hear that there are people out there listening to our podcast who find the, our attempts at, at finding an interesting and fruitful um, conversation thread um to to be valuable so i that's yeah yeah it's nice it is nice i i am not currently working for the church i have in the past as a teacher and the truth is i do not think based on the rhetoric i hear from church officials i don't think they want me um in the as a church employee i think that i feel like the lines that are drawn very clearly are drawn in a place that excludes me but um you know none of us would be taking umbrage or exception or grappling or struggling or or fighting against any sentiment that we found in the lesson if we if we didn't come from a life experience that where the church has been very influential in a positive way for me and people in the church um and in my own sort of christian faith and development so uh you know we're struggling and and finding our way uh, through these issues and um and we hope that it's helpful. 
that's our, our sincere prayer, hope, desire. Um, feel free to share this podcast with anyone who you feel would benefit and um, tune in again next week.